So yes, thank you very much, and thank you for the invitation uh, to be here. So what I'd like to do is, as I'm saying the first introductory thank you or two, is ask everyone <coughs> to think about um, if you've done online research or research with digital media about some of the ethical questions that came up in your work or about concerns that you have about doing this kind of work and ethical questions. So what I'm going to do in the talk is give a bit of an overview of some of the conversations and concerns that have been about uh, research ethics and online research. Uh, but what I'd like to do in the question time is not so much, I mean, I'm perfectly happy to answer questions, but rather have it than have a focus on me, I'd rather have a discussion among all of us about the kinds of situations that come, have come up, the kinds of approaches people have taken, uh, questions that I may not have uh, touched on in my talk. So we can have a broader conversation about a lot of these issues. I also have um, uh, references uh, today so that when I'm saying you can look at this or look at that in website, so uh, I don't know if people want to pass those around and so on. Okay. Um, and I didn't come all the way from Louisville here today, by the way. Did I'm not pass around people? Sure. Sorry? Yeah, it's two pages there. Thank you. Um, I'm actually up in Durham for three months, so it's not. It, I appreciate being invited, but it wasn't a long trip. I don't know why I felt that was necessary to say. Um, okay, so uh, imagine you go into a coffee shop and you see two people at a table having an animated conversation. And they're talking about something. And as often happens in coffee shops, you can sit at the next table and hear every word they're saying and listen to what they're saying. And sometimes that's uh, a guilty pleasure that I think we all engage in. Um, but I think any of us, as researchers, would not feel the permission at that moment to take out our recorder or to take out our notebook and take down every word they were saying and then publish it without their permission. We would feel that they had, even though they were in a, pu a public place, a reasonable expectation of privacy at that moment in their conversation. Now, if one of them got up and started giving a speech, we might feel that that context had changed and that person's expectation of privacy had changed. In an online setting, two people are having a conversation, an animated conversation about a personal issue on a forum about healthcare issues dealing with children. And they're having the same kind of conversation. The question is, what's their expectation of privacy at that moment? Uh, it's the same conversation they might be having in the coffee shop between the two of them but it's in an online setting and anyone can access it. So with that sort of scenario in your mind, uh, I want to talk some today about research ethics and online settings and overview and uh, sort of talk about an overview of some of the questions that have come up about these issues. If you're doing research with people, you're going to be doing research with their online lives because online, offline, the lines are becoming so blurred that it's impossible to, to draw a neat line between them. Uh, particularly now that we've got nifty little mobile devices, the difference between when we're online and when we're offline and what the effect is, is very hard to demarcate. So uh, I think these are questions that we're all going to have to be dealing with if we're doing research with people. Um, the, the questions that have surrounded research ethics online um, have changed uh, and evolved because the technology is changing and evolving. This is a famous 
very well-known Peter Steiner, New Yorker cartoon. If you can't read the caption, uh, it's the famous On the Internet, Nobody Knows You're a Dog cartoon. Um, the one dog talking to the other. And that's from 1993, right? And the question there about authenticity and how do we know who's at the other end of the computer conversation that we're having uh, and who that person is. And the questions of authenticity are ones that I'm going to touch on in a moment. Um, but by 2015, uh, Kamran Hafiz's sort of response to that is, remember when on the internet nobody knew who you were, uh, which is a different sort of question. Uh, and in fact, you know, now, rather than nobody knowing you're a dog, uh, you know, it's your name is Fluffy, you live at 425 Third Street, you know, uh, uh, your, your life can be tracked and the data can be gathered by all kinds of people for all kinds of reasons. So questions of, of privacy, of use, of reuse of data have become uh, important questions to us all. Um, so before I talk specifically about ethics, I think it's also, what do I do with my water? Oh, uh, sorry. Um, that's going to be on the podcast now, right? What do I do with my water? <laughs> I think it's also useful to not get completely bound up in thinking about particular technologies. Uh, because I think often a new technology comes along and we say, well, okay, so what does Twitter mean toward this? Or what does Snapchat mean toward that? Um, and I think when we do that, we miss sort of the more important principle underneath of what is happening, what is different with digital media that allows us to think more uh, effectively about the sort of ethical issues involved. So rather than thinking about specific technologies, there's sort of four principles or ideas that I think digital media uh, involves that are particularly useful to think about here. And of course, I'm not saying these are exhaustive and there may be others that people want to bring up. One is the idea of collaboration and response. Obviously, di digital uh, media and online media makes it much more easy, much easier now to uh, talk to other people, collaborate with other people, respond to texts in a way that we couldn't in the past. And as with all of these, uh, speed and distance, time and speed and distance have changed in our, and the way we encounter them. I can now, uh, you could be tweeting this today and somebody in Australia or China or South Africa could be responding to the tweets almost instanta instantaneously. Um, so which leads to the second idea, which is that publication and distribution are, are much different. So that we can publish things very easily and distribute them broadly and very quickly um, in ways that we couldn't have done with print. But that leads to this next idea of something that's changed, which is that text is very malleable now. Unlike print, which once it was on paper, yes, you could cut it up with scissors, but basically you were going to change it easily. Now a text, the impermanence uh, is very much a, a continuing principle, and it can be sampled and remixed and copied uh, very easily. Uh, and the last one's multimodality, that we can now easily make films, videos, uh, texts that combine all of them, and uh, again, distribute those and remix them very easily. <laughs> so if we think about those kinds of ideas of what changes with online and digital media, then that helps, I think, also then think about what are some of the questions that come up that are distinctive challenges in online research. Um, and I'm going to touch briefly on these five areas, and then, like I said, I hope we can have a conversation about them. And I'll offer a couple of ideas at the end uh, that people have put forward about ways of rethinking our approaches to research ethics. 
Um, so identity, authenticity, privacy, relationships, interpretation, and representation. Okay. So identity and authenticity, or on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. But even before we get to the idea of who is on the other end of things, I think the very question of what a human subject is has changed. So a human subject used to be somebody that I'm looking at face-to-face, -face, an embodied corporeal person. But now there's a question of, you know, what is a social media profile? If we think of a human subject in terms of this is a definable identity that can be affected by the research we do, what does that mean? How do we think about that in terms of how we need to get consent, how we need to quote and respond to people, what kinds of expectations they may have of privacy? That that line between the embodied and the representational, particularly in social media, but, but in a lot of uh, online media, has, I think, made us have to at least rethink what we mean by human subjects in terms of things such as getting consent and so on. Um, once we might have decided that, then the question is, how do we verify the authenticity of that person? Uh, this is a particular interest. I mean, it's a, of interest to all of us. Obviously, we want to have a, a sense of who we're dealing with. But institutional review boards, human subjects review boards, are particularly um, involved in this question because to them, that moment of informed consent is their, is their raison d'etre, right? That's why they exist, most institutional review boards. Um, and their response to this question varies widely. My institutional review board, for example, must have a signed consent form from a person, even if you're doing online. So just an email response back offering consent is not sufficient. They have to get a consent form. Now, they've, they've altered things enough so they could get the consent form by email, print it out, scan it, sign it, and send it back. But it still has to be a signed consent form. But by no means is that um, uh, uniform. And it changes, and of course the complicated thing becomes, as you are contacting, if you are doing research that is contacting people from around the world in different cultures, not only with different cultural expectations of privacy, but with different institutional review boards, some places that have, don't have a tradition of human subjects research, other places that have very different uh, both cultural expectations and institutional regulations, that becomes increasingly complicated too as to, as to how we verify that authenticity and engage in consent uh, from a distance. Um, and then questions of if you can't quite tell who somebody is, and sometimes it's not a matter of a complete misrepresentation, but sometimes it's just partial information or a partial misrepresentation. Um, although there are certainly people, you know, who like to troll, right? There are people who would like to manipulate and play uh, games with things online. But questions such as, is someone a minor? Is someone, and a minor by whose standard? Uh, and what age? And how do we determine that? And how do we determine that somebody is uh, that age? So those are some of the questions about, and these have been, you know, is reflected in that Steiner cartoon that goes back to 1993. This has sort of been the broadest conversation about research ethics, in part because it has such an impact on institutional review boards. So that's driven a lot of the research. Uh, the next one is privacy, uh, which takes us back to, our, to my coffee shop example. 
Um, what are our expectations of private and public? Uh, and I think, again, online uh, technologies and practices have really changed or at least really muddied uh, the binary of public and private. And so perhaps even thinking of it in those terms isn't as useful a conversation anymore. Um, but there are several things in particular that come up about privacy. One is the idea of traceability, is a term that Michael Henderson and his co-authors use, and they're, they're on the references there. Um, the idea of can you trace information back to the source from some other means. So for example, if I do research with people and my institutional review board wants me to use pseudonyms when I write about them, but I quote from their social media pages, then that quote can be taken, put in a Google search with quotations around it, and will lead you right back to their social media page. So the anonymous, the pseudonym, means nothing, right? They can get immediately back to it. And I will be completely honest with you, in Shimmering Literacies, right after Leslie has been so nice to call it a wonderful book, that's what I did, right? I quoted from people's social media pages, and you could, you could trace that back to them even though I used pseudonyms. So there's a complete disconnect there. Um, on the other hand, if we don't quote accurately from people's pages, then that causes a problem too, right? Or can we just paraphrase everything? You know, that, that causes its own problems about ethics and how we're representing uh, the material. Um, so that idea of traceability uh, is a hugely important question. Um, connected to that is a question of uh, data gathering. You know, the, we're in the era, so we're told, of big data. As I think we all know, there's nothing ephemeral about online data. It, it exists and gets reused and gathered up in all kinds of places. Um, and how that information is going to be stored and accessed on what kind of servers and who's going to have access to it um, is another question of ethics and privacy that we have to think about if we're sending emails to and forth to and from a participant in another place, and that email is not encrypted, um, then there are all kinds of ways that email could be accessed by various people for various reasons. And, you know, government, uh, everyone from government to Mark Zuckerberg, uh, right, has been gathering data for lots of different reasons. So that question of who's got access to the data and who might have access to it in ways we can't even anticipate yet. Um, and then the last one uh, about privacy is privacy and community, which really gets more to that question of the coffee shop. What are the expectations of privacy that people have and when do they have them? So if you look at, here are three different online forums, um, discussion boards. One from a film criticism site, one from The Guardian, and one from a forum about healthcare issues. In each of those, all of those are accessible to me you know, just a person doing Google searches. Um, but people posting on them may have very different expectations of what's going to happen and who's going to read this kind of information and who they're performing for. So people responding to a political column in The Guardian may see that as a public forum in which they are willing to have their comments out there for everyone to read and understanding that. The healthcare forum you can see it in the rhetoric that the people use. It's a conversation between two people that they're having about this issue. And some researcher coming in on it 
is the equivalent of the two people at the coffee shop talking and then me coming up and plopping myself down and saying, hey, this is interesting. I'm a researcher. Let's talk about it. Um, they're going to feel very much that there's been a violation of the norms there. Um, and so I think that the question of how we understand those norms, how we understand what people expect. And I think for people sitting at their computers, right, somebody sitting at, their, at a computer alone in a room responding to another person's post, there's a feeling of intimacy and individual communication that is not reflected as a sense of, yes, I'm posting this for the world to see. Um, so one approach to thinking about this issue then uh, comes from Helen Nissenbaum, who is a legal scholar. And she talks about the right to contextual integrity. And what she means by that is getting, again, getting away from the binary of public and private, but thinking about the idea of reasonable expectations of privacy. And that, that's a term that in legal terms, both in the US and the UK and the EU, has been invoked many times, and obviously there are all kinds of arguments about what a reasonable expectation of privacy is, but the, but the sense that there is one even when you're out in public, right, that you can, you can uh, that is an established tradition. And she talks about the right to contextual integrity as connected to that. She talks about context-relative informational norms. So, so when you go into a, an online site, what are the roles people are playing? What activities are they engaged in? What are the norms of communication that seem to be happening? And, and how does that seem to be working out in terms of how they expect that information to be used or adapted? And so if you take this, and I'll come back to her work in a couple of minutes, but if you take this idea and think about the values and the norms that are involved in it, and go back to that healthcare site, you could look at that and say, the expectation here, the roles of these people as two people who have been had health care issues and are talking about that, they are doing so in a way that their expectation is not that this is public in the way we think of anything just published on the internet as public. Um, whereas people say posting in a response to a Guardian political editorial might have a very different sense of that. Um, okay. Next one I want to touch on briefly is the idea of relationships. Uh, we all know if you've done research with people, I suppose if you've done research with dogs as well, but uh, that trust is an important thing. And I decided that dogs are the theme of the day. Um, that the trust of the person involved, uh, that the, the participant or subject has with the researcher is hugely important. And we don't get people to participate in our research if they don't trust us at some level. Um, and then what happens to that trust is often uh, complicated. Uh, Thomas Newkirk's excellent, excellent article called Seduction and Betrayal in Qualitative Research, which is on the references there, which I think is still one of the best pieces about research ethics, um, talks about the fact that particularly with the informed consent process, Often the emphasis is on that moment of getting informed consent. But then, after that, the conversations about ethics stop. And people are often then very surprised to see how they're represented and written about afterwards. Well, if that's happening in face-to-face -face, uh, research, certainly it's happening in online research. So the question of how we engage in relationships, particularly with people we can't see, 
are very important. And, and I think there are different ways that that happens. This is um, one of my current doctoral students, Brittany Kelly, uh, is doing research on fan fiction practices and literacy practices among fan fiction writers. And she uh, is a fan fiction writer herself, has been, and decided that in order to both engage in an honest but also trusting relationship with the people with whom she wanted to, to uh, recruit as participants, she needed to be clear about that and she needed to, to explain the context of who she was. So this is on one of the fan fiction sites and it's hard to read here, but the first paragraph is about her um, identity as a fan fiction writer. Her pen name is Phoenix Song Falling and so on. And then here it says, but I'm also a researcher and I'm also doing this research and so on. And she's laying it all out there because she felt it very important to sort of establish all of that. And then she's gone ahead as she has engaged in the research and remained in contact with people. So if she goes to do a conference presentation, she contacts them and says, the people she's worked with and says, I'm going to be doing this. This is what I'm going to be saying. I want you to know that. You know, do you have concerns or responses about it? And it's not that she would necessarily not use something if somebody was concerned about it, but at least she would have a dialogue with them or perhaps allow them to respond within the presentation about it. So that they have that opportunity to do that as she's writing and publishing and so forth. The other thing that Brittany has done is she's not only getting the consent of people who are the writers of the fan fiction, but if she wants to quote from any of the comments that people have made on fan fiction stories, she's also getting the permission of those people as well because her feeling is in that community uh, they're not expecting to be quoted without permission. Now I'm not saying that everyone has to do what she did, but I think that's, you know, she's really thought carefully about the trust and betrayal issues. Um, as I've been working on the current research, the book I'm working on right now is about student uh, writers and their perceptions of agency uh, and literacy practices, both in and out of the classroom. And I have been doing a lot of talking to and watching people as they're using their mobile devices. And again, if somebody posts something to Instagram and they get responses to it on their phone and they're talking about that to me and telling me about the responses they've they're getting, I feel like I need to, before I can use that, get the permission of the people whose responses she's representing to me. Uh, because again, that's certainly not what they think is happening on the other end of the phone here. Um, we really should stop calling them phones, right? They're just computers that you can occasionally make a call on. Um, okay. A couple of other things. Then. Our traditions of analysis, things like triangulation, um, are not necessarily things that people are expecting outside of academics. So if somebody, and again, this idea is taken from Michael Henderson and his co-authors. Um, if you interviewed somebody face-to-face, -face, and then you went to their social media site, and you saw other information about that, and you took the face-to-face -face interview, and then you used some of the social media information to then make a further analysis about what they were doing, that's probably not an analytical move that person is going to be expecting. So I think that's another thing that we need to think about how we talk about our processes. 
if you go on social media on people who are tweeting about um, food or having a Twitter conversation about food and your project is to look at eating disorders and you're taking those tweets and analyzing them toward what they might be saying about eating disorders or that evidence of dyslexia or any number of things, that again is not an analysis that people engaged in that are going to be expecting and that raises questions. Uh, and then the last one, which is obviously one that comes up in face-to-face, -face, is the question of illegal or dangerous activity. You see a post on a forum or a Twitter or something that seems to talk about an illegal activity or someone who might be thinking of harming themselves. Um, how do you respond? How do you respond, particularly when you don't know where that person is, whom to report it to, what that might mean, how to intervene in that? How do you respond to that? Uh, as a humane person, it, it offers very different kinds of questions. Okay, so two other things that, oops. Um, I realize I'm sort of going through these sort of quickly, but as I said, I sort of wanted to do a larger overview so we could have a conversation. The last two have to do with the fact that when we're talking about looking at stuff online, we're talking about texts. We're talking about reading and composing texts. And so there are interpretive and composing issues involved with those. And so when we're looking at anything that's posted online, we're, we're making particular kinds of interpretive moves about it. And we need to really think about our reading practices as we're engaged in interpreting these. Um, multimodality, how we read uh, images, how we read video, and our emotional responses to that, our cognitive responses that might be different to how we read words that people are typing or how we even respond to people face to face, um, are things we need to be aware of. So a couple of examples of that. One is when I was working on Shimmering Literacies and I was sitting with a student and she was showing me her uh, social media profile and she opened it up and instead of a profile photo, she had a picture of a tongue piercing gone wrong um, that was gory and bloody and everything. And uh, my response was, Ugh. and there was no way to not have that emotional response to it. And I had to understand, and her response to me in saying that was, yeah, that's exactly what I want my audience to do. And we had an interesting conversation about it. But images act on us differently than words do. We think about images and we think we're seeing the truth and we have emotional responses to them in the way that we can detach ourselves a little bit from words. And obviously I'm not saying anything new here, but as researchers we need to think about what that is. So if we're seeing, for example, um, images of a house or of a home and looking for evidence of literacy practices in that, we're also not unable to see how clean that home is, how affluent that home is, how all the other things involved in that. And that may be part of what we are engaging in, in the research, but we also have emotional responses to it we need to be aware of. The other thing that is up there is the idea of algorithms and how that's changing what we see online. Uh, as probably a lot of you know, Twitter, Facebook, Google now have very sophisticated algorithms that start funneling stuff to you based on what you've done in the past. So depending on what you've liked, what you haven't liked, who you've responded to, you get more of the same. 
Uh, do you want to read a really fascinating article? It's not in the references, and now I'm spacing the guy's name, but it was in Wired a couple of years ago. And he clicked, he liked everything that showed up on his Facebook page for 48 hours straight. And then saw how that changed everything he was seeing. Uh, if you, you could Google how I liked everything on Facebook for 48 hours and find the article. Um, it's sort of horrifying. But, but our social media practices now, our own social media practices, may be changing the world we're seeing, the information we're getting. And so if we are wanting to get a sense of how people might be responding to a particular cultural or political moment, and we're looking at our social media feeds, or even think we're looking at somebody else's, right? I can go to my Twitter feed and think, oh, okay, I'm looking at all the things that are going on in the world. Well, some of the things I'm looking, but the people I'm being told to follow, the things that are trending, a lot of these things are being now tailored toward me, supposedly, based on my previous activities. Um, so how we think about what it is that we're seeing online is also another ethical issue. Uh, and then last is the idea of representation. Um, increasingly, a lot of us are publishing various things in online uh, forums, in multimodal forums. Uh, and those representations um, then raise other kinds of issues. Again, things that can be put online can be sampled and remixed, and that includes academic things by other people for all kinds of reasons. And if you think, well, that's sort of far-fetched, then think about the kid in Canada who was playing around, pretending he was fighting with a Star Wars lightsaber in his school media lab, and it ended up being posted as a Star Wars kid and has now been seen millions of times and become its own meme and so on. What's going to become viral, what's going to become taken up and used other places um, is very, very hard to predict. I got an email the other day from somebody asking me about a particular quote that was attributed to me. And I looked at it and thought, I never said that. I really don't, I mean, not only don't I think that, but that just doesn't sound like me. Um, and I started tracing it back, and it turns out it was, uh, there had been a blog in an undergraduate class at another university where they had read an article of mine, and the person in the <coughs> blog had, had quoted me and then had this other statement after that. And then somebody else picked up that other statement and also attributed that to me. And now that's out there circulating as me. Um, not that that's that big a deal, but my point is that things, anything can get sampled and remixed, and we need to think about that. Uh, Jim Rodolfo and Nicole DeVos, Daniel DeVos, um, talk about this as uh, an idea of rhetorical velocity. In other words, what gets taken up and propelled through the web? How can we think about doing that purposefully sometimes, but also how do we think about what it is we're representing? Where do we put it behind firewalls? Where do we put it out there? what might get taken up and used in other ways, and how do we want to you know, at least let that uh, guide, or at least keep that head in the, in the back of our minds as to what we're uh, putting up. Um, and then finally, the idea of multimodality, I think I've covered some of that. Um, the idea of publicly posted texts. Um, if somebody posts something again, are we allowed to use it? Uh, 
I was at a conference a couple of years ago, and somebody had done some research on young people and gaming, but didn't have permission to use video from that particular project in a presentation. But she had found video of other children playing similar games on YouTube and was using that for illustrative purposes in the presentation. But clearly those other children, <coughs> or whoever put the post up, hadn't thought that that's what was going to happen with this. And again, to what purposes can we put texts uh, that are put, clearly have been posted for other reasons? So here are two things to think about then that allow us uh, some way forward with this. And one is, this is back to Helen Nissenbaum and to thinking about contextual integrity. And this is something when she says that uh, when we encounter a community, if we're thinking about those privacy issues, there's sort of a checklist that she recommends we go through. You know, first you identify the prevailing context. Well, this is about healthcare. And then maybe the more, the subcultures within it, the subcontext. Well, it's parents and it's children with this particular disorder and you know it's within this sort of it's on this particular forum and website that's run by this organization and begin to get a sense of who the actors are in it um, identifying the, the subjects the senders the recipients the hierarchies of power uh, and then what the transmission principles are what do people seem to be saying how do people are they responding to it what seem to be the norms gathering uh, governing the interactions and what would disrupt that? You know, and things that would disrupt that, we have to think about what the ethical implications of that, and particularly when we're the disruptive force being researchers. The other one, and this I think will get posted, so if people want to, to uh, look at this later, they can. The other one is, and I expect everyone to copy that down quickly, um, <laughs> is Mary Bryden Miller's idea of structured ethical reflection. And this is something that she talks about, not specifically about online research, but I think is applicable to that. In which she's arguing that the contractual nature of the consent form ethical approach, that there's this contract that you sign and then everyone's bound by that in a particular way and that's the end of it, um, that we need a more sort of covenantal approach to ethics. And what she argues is that it needs to be an ongoing process that has specific points through the whole ethics process. And so one of the things she starts with is at the very beginning coming up with a list of values that the, all the people involved have about the project. Um, now, obviously, it doesn't have to be this list, right? This is just one generated from a particular project, but different values that people have. And then sort of paring that down to a more uh, manageable set of five or six core values that people are feeling are important to them at that particular stage in the project. And then she has, and again, this is sort of hard to see here, but, but it'll be posted online. Um, but on the left, you know, sort of there are the values here. And on the top are, okay, here's the point of developing research partnerships. Here's the point of constructing research questions, seeking funding, identifying and gathering data, and analyzing it, disseminating knowledge, moving on. And those are sort of points at which the conversation happens again, you know, between the researcher and the participants of what are our values at this point? What's at stake for you? What's at stake for me? How has that changed? 
you know, what do we want at this point? Because these things change. What somebody might be concerned about as they're signing a consent form after the research process and it gets to writing it up may be a very different set of concerns. Um, so I think, I think this is a, a, a different kind of approach to how we might think about ethics. Okay, so as I said, I asked you at the beginning to think about issues and questions of your own. So what I'd like to do is have that kind of conversation now of the kinds of, oh, you know what, and I forgot to credit another doctoral student of mine, uh, Stephanie Weaver, for giving me the information about algorithms and the idea about that, which is part of her project. I'm a terrible person. Um, but we can talk about, uh, and not a very ethical one either, if I'm not <laughs> citing my graduate students. Um, if we can talk about some of the issues that come up and some of the things that have come up for you, some of the questions that you have or some of the other kinds of approaches that you've taken, uh, I'd like to, to spend some time having that conversation.